Bibles. To the Epistle of Romans. Chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Read the first 10 verses this morning. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And alone, I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them, or a recompense for them. Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Many of you are familiar with the concept of eternal life. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now let me point out a couple things about that statement. Eternal life is what you get when you believe in Christ. But listen to the tense of the verb. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You know what? One day not too long ago, I got done preaching. I walked out that door, went over to my van, put things away for the lunchtime, and a guy sitting right up here in the front row followed me right out and got to me before I got to the van. And he said, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Let me ask you something. If you have some form of life that you can lose, is it eternal life? It's temporary life. Something is only temporary if I can have it and lose it. But eternal life is not simply something that I get when I die if I'm a Christian. Eternal life is something that if you have believed in Jesus Christ, 
you have already. And if it's eternal, there's no losing it. I know a lot of guys that go around and talk about once saved, always saved. They've got this misconception. I mean, yes, there are things about that when you hear it that tend to ought to raise red flags and make you think they may be talking about something that isn't biblical at all. That you can basically be a Christian but not live like one and go on to heaven. That's what a lot of people mean by that. Now, no, obviously we don't believe that. Scriptures don't teach that. But as far as the concept of being saved once and never being able to lose it, absolutely we believe that. Otherwise, what sort of salvation is it? It's not the kind that God gives. Because what He gives is definitely eternal. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. But let me tell you something about this eternal life. It's not a cheap thing. It's not a shallow thing. It's not an insignificant thing. Jesus Himself said in John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. I mean, that means lavishly, richly, inexhaustively, overflowingly. That's what abundance of life is all about. And you know what? Think about it. If Jesus is saying that to believe in Him and get this eternal life and to have this life more abundantly, what by implication is He saying about the life that you have if you're not saved? It's a narrow thing. It's a constricted thing. It's constrained. It's meager. It's sparse. It's fleeting. And that's what you have. If you're here lost today, I mean, you, you know how people can say, it's interesting, when I was flying back from Indonesia, you know they got those little TV screens there, and after 10, 12, 13 hours, you're just clawing for something to do. And you know, you, you've by then looked through all the things on the menu that are possible to watch and clean. And uh, as Craig and I both found out, it is not a good place to try to study Scripture. It's not a place to try to prepare for the next sermon. And so kind of mindlessly, I, I turned on this thing. There was the highlights from all these Super Bowls. And so I brought it up. And several years back, I guess, uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers were in there. And they showed right before the game the coach. He's walking up and down the sidelines. And he, I forget exactly what he said, but there was a profanity in it. That's as far as I went. I turned the thing off. But before I turned it off, what I got from the guy is he was saying something like, it doesn't get any better than this. Let me tell you something. If you're lost, you may have this idea that sitting back on the, on the beach of Hawaii, sipping the drink, you may think it doesn't get any better than that. I'll tell you what, Christ said it gets a whole lot better than that. Because the problem with that is what? One hour of playing time later, that guy's dream was gone. And if any of you have ever heard the time the Patriots were in it and Tom Brady was done, the rest of the team went out to celebrate. Tom Brady, his girlfriend's a supermodel. He's just won the greatest sports event in the world. Anybody know that story? You know what he did? He went to his hotel room and he sat down in a chair in the silence there. And it struck him. That's all there is. And he always imagined it would be greater. But then it's gone. If all you have is life in this world, soon it's going to be gone. And no matter what pleasures you have, they are fleeting. 
but to have life more abundantly. That is to have the fullness of it and to have it forever. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the abundance? I mean, what is it that makes it so abundant? What's the material of that abundance? What does it look like? Experientially, what should I expect? And you can say it's abundant, but what does that mean? Does that mean now I get to cart my Bible around? Is that the abundance? I get to come to fatties and sit in these walls? And No. In John 17, Jesus Christ describes what makes up the very fabric of eternal life. John 17, 3. This, Jesus Christ says, and if anybody knows, it's Christ. He says, this is what it's all about. This is eternal life. This is the heart of the matter. That they, Christians, His disciples, that they know You, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom You've sent. Now you may be sitting here and say, I know about Him. It's not that great a thing. I've never found it to really be satisfying. I've actually found sex to be more satisfying than Christ. I've found drugs to be more satisfying than Him. I've found going after money to be more satisfactory. I've found this or that other thing. It's because you don't know Him. Oh, you may know some facts about Him, but listen, the term know in the Scriptures carries a much deeper and weightier meaning than so often we are accustomed to ascribe to it. No. You've heard me say this a number of times. Adam knew his wife. And what happened? She had a son. We don't talk like that. Adam knew his wife and she had a son? You get the idea there. Knowing has a little bit more than knowing a few little nominal facts about somebody, folks. There's an intimacy in that knowing. You know... In Amos chapter 3, God says of Israel that you alone among all the families of the earth have I known. Now let me ask you this. Does God know everything? Absolutely. Does He only know about Israel? He knows all the families on the face of the earth. What does that mean when it said that He alone knows them? It means that with a very particular love, with a very particular choosing, with a very particular affection. He has set His love upon them. He has chosen them. The idea of knowing is a term of intimacy. It is a term of relationship, communion, friendship. That's what it's... You know what? You know what's at the heart of eternal life? It's having... God wrap His arms around you and draw you in close. Oh, I'll tell you what. Sunday school, we were talking about the chastening of the Lord. Craig and I were talking afterwards. I'll tell you one of the things that has, we were both agreeing, one of the things that has crushed us and humbled us more than anything else is not always when God hits us with the rod. It's when we mess up. We fall into sin. And we're ready for the rod to come. 
and he throws his arms around us. Oh, if anything, just has the ability to, to humble you. And how often that's how he deals with us. When we deserve altogether differently. Doesn't the scripture say he has not dealt with us according to our sins? Oh, what a blessed. And this, this I've said this to, you know, I've obviously said this before, but it's so true. So many people have this idea of Christianity like the wedding certificate that they can put on the wall. And they can say, look, I'm married. I've got that. And it's no more than, you know, they go to work and they parade that thing off and every night they just sleep under their desk. And they never go home. To what? To enjoy their wife. To actually have intimacy. To actually sleep in the same bed. But that's what it's like with Christianity. Folks, the husband-wife relationship was created specifically to be a picture of the relationship that God has with His people. Not vice versa. It wasn't God just looking around saying, where can I come up with examples? It was actually created for that purpose. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. There's a picture in this. Knowing this is at the heart. This is what eternal life is. That God is mine. I am His. We can wrap our arms around each other. We can know. We can intimately love one another. That's what it's about. And, and you know, as, as the Apostle Paul contemplated this in Philippians chapter 3, when he talks about the knowledge, the surpassing value, or the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, you know what happens as the reality of that floods in on his soul? He says, I count everything else but loss. I mean, that is so great. That is so full. Hey, you can take guys that have played professional ball. My son's into basketball now. We went and borrowed that, that Pistol Pete Maravich video from the Haney's. You watch that. You know he died a Christian. He was converted. After his NBA career, you know what he did? He went and sat in a room for two years. He wasn't a Christian then. Sat in a room for two years. He was the first professional basketball player to make or have a million dollar contract. He had all the money, he had all the riches, and he went and he sat in a room for two years, just totally empty. But I'll tell you what, no matter what you've tasted in this world, once a person has truly tasted Christ, there's no turning back. Because it so satisfies. There's nothing to go back to. Once you've truly tasted of Him. In fact, all it does is create a greater hunger and a greater dissatisfaction. That I want more. I'm no longer content. There's this longing. I want more. I want Him to draw close. I want to feel Him. I want to experience Him. I don't want to just know facts. I want to know Him. Paul prays, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I'll tell you this, if this church is truly growing, ever truly growing, ever truly reaching heavenward, moving upward, the fact is that we will genuinely 
genuinely be coming to grips more and more with the surpassing value of knowing Him. We will more and more be given this spirit of revelation in the knowledge of Him, coming to know Him. Revelation, that's what we need. The fact is, without the revelation, without God revealing Himself to us, we can't take that upward climb. We need God to reveal Himself to us. We must... Here's where I'm headed with all this. You say, how does that fit into where you're at in Romans? Well, just this. If I'm going to know God, I mean, if I'm going to really come into intimacy with Him, obviously, it is made up of some objective knowledge about God. I mean, just the same way that I have an intimacy with my wife, a friendship, a communion, a companionship, and yet there are many objective facts that I know about her. We can never have that relationship without those. And as we grow in that, we grow in an understanding of what pleases Him, of what nurtures this intimacy between us as we draw closer and closer. One thing that is key is that God reveal Himself to us. You say, well, okay. Hey, that's not a small thing. If we want to know God deeply and personally, we must know Him actually. Not the way sometimes we perceive Him to be, but the way He reveals Himself to us. Look, we can, we can say yes to that. We can say amen to that. But I guarantee you this. There are some of you sitting in this room right now. You do not have a proper understanding of who God is. You do not see Him the way He really is. You've got perceptions about Him. Oh, I'll tell you. Before I was saved, my perceptions of God were not biblical. And neither were yours. And even saved sometimes, we have wrong ideas about who God is. If we're going to grow in the knowledge of Him, we need to grow in a knowledge of who He actually is. And who He actually is is how He reveals Himself to us. And you know where He reveals Himself to us? It's found in the Word. We need revelation. We need God revealing Himself. We're probably everyone in this room agreement with that. You can say, yeah, that's what we need. We need God to reveal Himself. The problem is, this is a big problem. The problem is that once God begins to reveal Himself to people, very often, people begin immediately to say, whoa, I don't like that. I don't want that. You see, a lot of people talk in religion, a lot of people talk in Christianity, a lot of people sitting in churches today. But there's a lot of people in those places that don't know about the true God as God reveals Himself. Problem is, once God begins to reveal Himself, people quickly come to the conclusion that that's not really the God that they want. I mean, just look. You guys right now are in Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 7. The elect obtained it. What did they obtain? It. They obtained the thing that Paul has really been hitting on all through his gospel. You see it at the end of chapter 9. You see it right there at the beginning of chapter 10. What is the it? The elect obtained righteousness. 
They obtained a right standing with God. They obtained salvation. But the rest were hardened. Now let me tell you something about all the rest. That hardening is passive. It means that that is being done to them. God chose certain people to obtain eternal life. The rest, they're being hardened by God. Here's the thing. Think about that statement. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. I mean, as I, as I thought about that statement, where do you hear that? Who says that? I was noticing during the Sunday school, I looked across the street. There's places over there where they've covered over graffiti. Have you ever seen that in the graffiti? The elect found it, the rest are hardened. You ever heard Katie Couric say it? You ever heard Rush Limbaugh say it? Think with me. This is God revealing Himself to us. He is the God who chooses. He is the God who hardens. Who's saying that? Who's teaching that? Flip on TBN. Go through the stations. I don't think you're going to find it. Hardly nobody is saying this. Hardly nobody. We go to San Antonio College. We talk to the students there. You think the professors and teachers in those classrooms are saying that? You think you're going to find it in the headlines or in the back page even of the Express News? I mean, think with me here. Is there any greater reality that God is presently bringing all of His elect towards ultimate glorification and the rest He's hardening? It's happening everywhere. It's happening in every nation, in every family, among every tribe, among every tongue. And the rest are being hardened right now. Some of you in this room, my message today is only going to work to harden you. God is literally doing this everywhere. It is a universal thing. And yet, who's saying it? Where's it being broadcast? How can we come to know the God of Scripture unless we know Him as He reveals Himself? And I'll tell you, as we go into what we're going to go in today, some of you aren't going to like it. Because it proves my very point. As the God of Scripture begins to reveal Himself, oftentimes men don't like it. They're not comfortable with it. They don't like a God who is like the God of the Bible. So, we must go to our Bibles. We must find our God in our Bibles. Only this way can we build the proper mental framework that upholds reality. Otherwise, we end off creating Santa Claus. And that's what happens. You know, basically, when I was lost, nominal Catholic, my idea about God was just that. Some old man upstairs. He loves me, smiles upon me, no matter what sin I commit. I saw him as the God who basically I could manipulate. I could make him what I wanted him to be. And I always made him into that sort of God that would look at my life and always think that I had done a little bit more good than bad and that the scales were going to weigh out in the end and he was going to accept me. I always made the God of Scripture into the kind of God 
that certainly was going to take me to heaven. Did you not do the same, many of you? Okay. Well, we're at Romans 11. I mean, we can't look at all the Bible and find out what God reveals to us in every place, but here we are in Romans 11. So, who is God for real? Let's look there. Look at the first verse. Notice the first question that's put before our faces as we enter this chapter. Romans 11.1 Has God rejected His people? Okay, it's not, a, it's not a hard question. Has God rejected? It's got to do with rejection. It's got to do with whether God does reject. Who? His people. Now, somebody could easily run to the conclusion His people must talk about the elect, or it must be Christians, which that's, you could be talking about the elect just from Israel, or the elect altogether, which makes up all Christians, but let me tell you something, from the context we know who his people is here, don't run immediately to the conclusion that he's talking about Christians, Paul is distinctly concerned with the nation of Israel, he's talking in fact, that has been his case ever since the beginning of chapter 9. The issue is with ethnic Israel, the nation itself. And that's what he's talking about here. And don't let his people mess you up. I mean, many, many times in the Old Testament, God called physical, national Israel his people. Many times. We, I don't even know the number. It's, it just happens often. But notice... Let me prove this to you, that this is who he's talking about. Notice how Paul answers. You can see in Paul's answer exactly who he's talking about. Has God rejected his people? Now, Paul says, by no means. And notice, for I myself am an Israelite. What he's asking is, has God rejected collectively national Israel? And Paul says, no, he hasn't. And he gives two proofs. First proof is, he hasn't rejected me. I mean, you see that right there. I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul has said, now listen, why does Paul even need to go here? I'll tell you why. From the very beginning, in Romans 9, he says, I could... I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren according to the flesh. I mean, he starts right there. He comes to the, those last four verses in Romans chapter 9, and what's he saying? The Gentiles found it. Israel didn't find it. Israel had a law. They were trying to keep their law. They stumbled. He says, Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone. You come into Romans chapter 10, and you look there, and Paul's saying the same thing. He said that basically, they rejected the righteousness that comes from God. The very last verse of Romans chapter 10, what does it say? I mean, basically, he looks at Israel. You know he's talking about them, because that's what the last verse there says. What is it, verse 21? He says, Israel. And what are they? They're a disobedient people, are they not? Now, the thing that I want you to understand is that's very comprehensive language. It can sound like 
All of Israel has rejected God. It can sound like God is done with Israel altogether. It can sound like all of those descended naturally from Abraham are now being excluded. It does sound like that. And Paul says, I don't want anybody to think that. Has God rejected His people? Israel? No. And here's a proof. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, it doesn't get any more Jewish than that. If God had rejected Israel as a whole, He would have rejected me. That's what Paul is saying. But He hasn't rejected me. That's proof that indeed, at least one is included. So, that's the first thing. Has God rejected His people? No. He has not rejected physical Israel. That's the first proof. I myself am an Israelite. But there's a second. I mean, he he broadens this thing out further. Look in verse 2. God has not rejected His people. Again, His people referring to physical Israel. He has not rejected the ones from physical Israel whom He foreknew. And now He's going to prove this through the history. Of Israel. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and alone, he says, I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? <clears throat> you know what's happened here? Paul looks back at the history of Israel, he finds this situation where Elijah thought he was the only one, and God comes along and says, Elijah, you're not the only one. I have kept 7,000 for myself who have not bent the knee to Baal. And Paul looks at that and says, ah, there is an example from history I can draw from of God's sovereignty in choosing. That God has a purpose for Israel, and the same way it was so back then, What does Romans 11.5 say? So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. As in Elijah's day, so also in Paul's day. And so also today. That's the idea here. God was faithfully working in Israel. He had not totally forsaken the nation of Israel. The truth of Romans 9.6 comes alive. What is that truth? They are not all Israel who are of Israel. But there is a true Israel within Israel. That's his point. And in Paul's day, it was just as true as in Elijah's day. It's still true today. You know, I I think it's likely that maybe we don't really grasp, even in Paul's day, how many Jews were indeed saved. Just the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there. Stay right there in Romans 11. But listen to this. Acts 6-7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I tell you, you couldn't be in the priestly line unless you were Jewish. Many of them were coming to the faith. Acts 21.20 And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to Him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Many thousands. Very likely, when there were 3,000 saved, when there were 5,000 added, that the bulk of those 
I realize it was at a time when others were traveling from other places and they were in Jerusalem at the time. But I tell you, many of those folks were Jewish. Peter was Jewish. Thomas was Jewish. Bartholomew was Jewish. Folks, there, there is a remnant. There always has been and there is even to this day. That's Paul's argument here. But what this so powerfully teaches us about God is what's said right there at the beginning of verse 2. I mean, what I want you... Oh, folks, I love. One of the things I love more than anything else in life is discovering about our God. And then even more than that, teaching Him. I love to teach about God things that just open people's eyes and make them appreciate and stand back in awe and maybe sometimes tremble. I love that. What do we find here about God that is just so amazing? Look there. Verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. His people. Physical Israel. Paul is saying God has not rejected the Jews whom He foreknew. If God foreknew them, then He can't reject them. But watch. He's definitely rejected a whole bunch of them. How do we know that? Look down at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation... You know what happened? God rejected the majority of the Jews specifically according to His purposes so that the time of the Gentiles might come in. You see that? We're going to get to that in some weeks ahead. But Paul's point in verse 2 is this. If God foreknew them then He will never reject them. The foreknowing implies a commitment to them. It can't be broken. For God to foreknow is for God to forecommit Himself. It is God to forelove, to forechoose. It means before the foundations of this world. God sought you out, made you His own. He's known you the way a husband intimately knows a wife. And I'll tell you this. You've got people from every quarter today that want to run out and cheapen this word foreknown. Rather than see it as the knowing, the intimate knowing between a husband and a wife that God had in His mind and had affections for you in eternity past. You know what people want to do with that word? They want to say, all that word means is that God looked through history and saw who would believe. They desecrate the word. That is not what it means. People try to cheapen it all the time. Then God chooses those whom He sees will believe on Him. But let me ask you this. When God looks at all of mankind, can you find any text in the Bible anywhere that says God looks through time, sees who will believe, and chooses them? It's a figment of men's imagination. Do you know what Scripture says? It says... All men, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin. What is that? Romans 3, 9 or something there? They're all under sin. And what? How many are righteous? Not one. How many do good? Not one. How many seek after God? None of them. I'll tell you this, when God looks at mankind, He sees them entirely 
as a group who do not seek Him. If God looks down through the corridor of time to see what you will do, that's what He sees you will do. He knows who you are. Now listen. Jesus Christ Himself said, no man, this is in John 6.44, no man can come to Me unless what? My Father draws him. So if God's looking at the whole scheme of salvation, He doesn't see you believing. He sees Himself drawing you to Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. That is not of ourselves. It's a gift. It's something God gives to us. There's no place for us to boast. If you have faith, it's not because God looked down through the corridors of time to see that you'd rise up, pull up by your own bootstraps and figure out how to believe in God and He'd choose you. If He chooses you, He chooses you to set His affections on, His love upon, and then in the course of time, He comes alongside you and gives you, in all your ungodliness and unrighteousness, He gives you faith. Faith is a gift. It's not something you procure out of your own flesh and out of your own efforts. It's a God-given gift of grace. So no, foreknowing means that in eternity past, God set His love on a people. That's what it means. Now somebody here is going to say, that scares me. I don't like that. What if I'm not chosen? I know you'll think that. There's a number of you that probably that's running through your heads right now. What do we say? You're right. You're probably not chosen. Just give up. Throw in the towel. Leave here in despair. Is that what we say to people? You know what we say to them? We say, yes, there is a remnant. And yes, God does choose them. Yes, those who are foreknown, He'll never reject. But you know what we say to people? God chooses how. Look there at verse 5. So too at the present time there's a remnant. How are they chosen? By grace. By grace. Does God choose? Yes, God chooses. But how does He choose? He chooses by grace. Look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What Paul is saying is simply this. God does not choose anyone on the basis of anything we do. That's what grace is. If you say God looked down through time and saw who would believe, then it means that God is choosing you because of something you do. Then it's not grace. Grace is not grace if it's got to do with what you do. Grace is only grace if it's got to do with God who eternally and sovereignly elects according to the counsels of His will. That's grace. God is not this cosmic responder. In other words, with something we do, He only then responds to. Salvation is of the Lord. He is the initiator. Now listen, folks. 
if it's by grace, it means that it's not because of anything we have done. Now, you can look at that and you could say, but what if I'm not chosen? Well, here's the thing about grace. Look at it from the other side. Paul already said in this epistle that where sin abounds, what happens? Grace much more abounds. You know what grace means? Grace doesn't mean that God wants you to run around wondering if you're chosen or not. He wants you to realize this. If people are chosen by grace, it means that you cannot have done anything in your life to prevent you from being saved. There's nothing that stands in the way when it's by grace. You cannot have sinned enough because if your sin's this big, where's grace? And much more abounds. And on top of that, Jesus Christ never said to people, well, you better figure out if you're chosen. If you're not, you don't come to me. Is that what he said? You know what he said? He said, if you are burdened, if you are heavy laden, come. If your sin's crushing you down, come. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever desires, may come and drink of these living waters freely. Do you desire? Are you burdened of sin? Are you thirsty? He says, come. And he says this. There's not one that comes to me that I will cast out. Folks, let me tell you something. The doctrine of election is not given in the Scriptures to give us something to argue about. It's given to us to bring security and assurance to God's people. That if they are foreknown, God is going to take us all the way through. He is going to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. If you're foreknown, you're predestined to bear the image of Christ. If you're predestined to bear that image, you will be called. If you're called, you will be justified. If you're justified, you will be glorified. That is Scripture, folks. That comes right out of this epistle, Romans 8, 29 and 30. And you see why this is so critical. This all comes back to this. If God gave promises to national Israel and He's done with them, and He's forsaken those whom He foreknew. If He did that with the Jews, then what good is Romans 8, 29, and 30 for us Gentiles when it says He foreknew us? If He set His love and His affection, His intimacy upon us in eternity past, like Ephesians says, chapter 1, He chose us before the foundations of the world. He chose us in Christ. Before the foundations of the world. Folks, if He can choose us, if He can foreknow us, then we can ultimately fall away and slip into perdition. If that happened to the Jews, what's the people think happened to us? You know what this teaches us about God? His Word 
does not fail. That's what it says in Romans 9, 6. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. It stands steadfast to this day. All it shows is that the purposes of God, the purposes according to God's election, have stood firm. And I'll tell you this, this is another thing you need to know about the God that we worship. The God of the Bible. The God that we need to have revealed to us. He reveals Himself to us as the God who hardens men and women. Notice verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Not all of it. Not the whole thing. Not without exception. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. I, I emphasize this again. Who talks this way? Who talks? Who's telling us about God who elects and they're able to obtain it? Who talks about the rest of the world that are not elect being hardened by God? Who says these things? Hardly no one. And nothing could be more real. Nothing could be more certain. And just so you don't get any wrong ideas about what he means, Paul goes on to explain himself in verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. So many people have this idea of God impotently standing back and just begging all mankind to come to Him. You know what Paul's describing for us? A God who has written the script. A God who is specifically purposed. That given a certain amount of historical time that He would deal mainly with Israel. The rest were allowed to go their own way. But now, He calls all men everywhere to repentance. Christ said, you lift me up, I draw all men to me. Satan is bound that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And so we come into a new dispensation. It's the time of the Gentiles. God is constructing this. Because of their fall, it is ushered in an age of the Gentiles for our good and our glory. But, the fullness of the Gentiles will come to completion. And then, the Redeemer, He is going to purge national Israel. It's as though us coming in is meant to bring them to jealousy. And in the end of it all, Israel will be saved. We're going to hash through this, but what I want you to see is Paul is saying, this, this stuff that's happening in the world, I mean, the very fact we're a church here, the very fact that God is building a church here, this is exactly according to what we see here. The time of the Gentiles is not over yet. Why? Because no more Gentiles are being saved. We're still in that period. And it's glorious. And by the end, Paul just can't even contain himself. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has given the gift to Him that He might be repaid for? From Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever. I mean, what He sees is a God who with great glory and sovereignty and majesty is writing this script in a way that He consigns all to disobedience ultimately to show mercy on all. I mean, who can know His mind? Is this the way we would have written history? And yet it's working out exactly according to His will. These things aren't happening by chance. God has an elect. 
God has a purpose. God is calling whom He will. He's having mercy upon whom He will. And it's a piece and part of a much bigger plan. Our church here, we're just a small dot on this whole historical event line of what God has been doing through history and will continue to do well after we're gone. But God hardens men and women. I'll tell you, this is a fearful thing. God is the God who gives men a spirit of stupor. He makes men stupid. He blinds men's eyes. Now it says there, it's a retribution or it's a recompense. I'll tell you this, we are guilty. We are a guilty race because we come from the loins of Adam. And when Adam fell, guilt canvassed us. We are guilty in Him. We are guilty in our own sins. We are a guilty race. And when God hardens us, when He leaves us to ourself, when He simply allows us to go our way and even pushes us in that way, He is just in doing so. We cannot rise up and find fault with Him. Let the one of you in this room who has no sin find fault with Him. But we all have sin. And if He should throw us all in hell, we'd have no more than we deserve. We're saved by grace. That means we don't deserve it. If you come to Christ, you can't think to come because of anything that you've got to offer Him. It's all of grace. And I'll tell you what, the fact you're in here today hearing the Word, and you haven't been so hardened, you haven't become so stupid, that you're off somewhere else drinking the pleasures of this world, that alone is a grace. He goes on here. He makes people's tables a stumbling block, a snare, a tripping point. What does that mean? What do you typically have on a dinner table? Food. How does your dinner table become a snare? I'll tell you, we see it all around us. God is giving this country over to their appetites. That's what God does. You, In fact, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, you'll remember what happens when people forget God. He gives them over. Three times in chapter 1, God giving men over. You know what an indication is that He's giving them over? They're falling into sexual sin and sexual perversions. People look at this land and they say, oh, look at all these people running around in sexual sin and homosexuality. Certainly God's going to judge us. You misunderstand. That is God's judgment. It's because of those things the wrath of God is coming. When He gives men and women over to that, it is an indication that they are being hardened. That's what this God is like. Let me tell you something. If you chafe at this, if you are unsettled, the doctrine of election will test you. It will test you as to whether you're man-centered or whether you're God-centered. It does. It goes to the heart of the matter. If you're chafing, you don't like this, you want to explain it away, the idea here is that God bends people's backs. You see that there. It's amazing. 
here I am ready to preach on this text. I go to Papa's last Monday. I love to walk his street. God has made that a special place to me of prayer. As I walked that street and I was praying, I came upon a man whose back was bent. 90 degrees, right in the middle. I don't know if it was from arthritis or what, but he was bent like an inverted L. And I watched it. I didn't even, I didn't even realize I was going to be dealing with it in the text, but it, it caught my attention. And I watched this guy. And he walked from his mailbox up to his garage, bent, just like that. And then I went down the street and I came back. And now it was the day of collection. And people were bringing all their rubbish out to the side of the street. And he was now going to his neighbor's pile of rubbish, seeing if there was anything in there he wanted to keep. And again, he's walking by me, bent. And I said hello to him. And he said hello to me. But it just bent the whole time. And I got to this. God bends their backs perpetually. And I thought, what a picture of this guy. His back is bent permanently. And you know what he can't do? He can't look up. I watched him. He looked down at the ground all the time. All he ever looked at was the rubbish. God took away his ability to look into the sky. That's what happened. Oh, it may be a picture of God bending their backs under that rigorous law that they kept trying to keep. But whatever it was, it bent their backs so that they no longer had that ability to look up. You beware of this God of the Scriptures. He is not one to play with. He is not one to toy with. You come under the sound of the Gospel. I recommend to you, my friend, that you repent of your sins and go to Jesus Christ now, immediately. Do not think to do it in a future day. You might find yourself so hardened there is no more opportunity. It is of grace that you are saved. The unchosen are not more wicked than the chosen. And the chosen are not better than the unchosen. It is by grace. And it ought to humble us to think, God had mercy on me. And it ought to humble this church. I'll tell you what. God does what He does according to the counsels of His will. And if you look at this church and you say, you know what, God's been bringing a lot of people. You start comparing ourselves to others. Oh, there's lots of other churches that are bigger and probably growing faster. But you could compare yourself to some that aren't growing seemingly at all. Or even decreasing. I'll tell you this, if you've got any ideas that it is anything other than grace, you're talking trash. You know what? The doctrine of election hits us at the level of our pride. Grace hits us at our arrogance. And we tend to be such an arrogant people. We literally live in the air of arrogance. We live in the realm of a world that despises God. They don't tell us who He is. God is the greatest reality of this universe. And yet, where is He being proclaimed today? What's on all the television stations? What's in the news? The God who alone deserves the glory and the honor and the praise is slighted at every hand by mankind. May it not be so in the church. 
God forbid that we get to the point and we say, well, we know why we're experiencing blessings. It's got to do with us doing this or doing this. May you shut your mouth. God, give us a brokenness. It's all by grace. I glory in it. That He saved me by grace. He made me a pastor by grace. He's put me in this church by grace. In this city by grace. Fellowshipping with you all by grace. But it's all grace. And it's not because I was better or you were better. In fact, many of you know this. You know that among the group you ran with, you were one of the worst, if not the worst. But that all the more lends itself grace. May God give us humility. May God humble Grace Community Church. May God have greater and greater mercy on us. May by grace He answer many of our prayers that we yet have unanswered. But brethren, live in the ocean of grace. See everything with the eyes of grace. Let the doctrine of election, the doctrine of the chosen, the doctrine of God's hardening, the doctrine of grace, may it just destroy our pride. May God humble us. All for the name and sake of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ.